Hello, I'm Michael Heathsworth. And I'm Brian Livingston. I'm an executive fellow at the School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary. And I'm also uh, doing some work with the C.D. Howe Institute based in Toronto. And my name is Erica Myers. I'm an associate professor in the Department of Economics at the University of Calgary, and I hold the Canada Research Chair in Environmental Energy and Resource Economics. When it comes to addressing climate change, decarbonization of industry and transportation typically get all the attention. But as Canada aims for a net zero emissions goal by 2050, there's one sector that may go overlooked, buildings. Buildings contribute more to annual emissions than personal vehicle use. And unlike your gas guzzler of today, the homes and offices leaving large carbon footprints in the environment will still be in use 30 years from now. Brian and Erica join us for insight into the federal government's ambitious emissions reduction plan and where they see significant stumbling blocks on the way forward. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Brian, you point out in a recent intelligence memo at the cdhow.org that setting targets is a lot easier than hitting them. On the path to zero by 2050, we're aiming for a milestone in 2030. What is it, and how likely are we to achieve it? Well, the uh, emissions reduction plan that the government put out, the federal government put out in March of 2022, said 43 million tons, or about 6% of Canada's emissions, come from residential buildings. That's the house in the suburbs, but that's also the condos and the apartments that 40% of uh, form 40% of the units. They want to reduce, they, the federal government says their target is to reduce that to 25, which if you do the math is about a 42% reduction. And I did some forecasting and looked at the number of uh, residential units that use natural gas and heating oil. And I said, I think that 43 is really only going to come down to about 42. So to answer your question, that would fall short of the federal government's target of 25. And Erica, does that jibe with what you've been researching? Yes, I think that's going to be a very ambitious target. Most of the work that I do, I think about residential energy efficiency. You can weatherize your home. You can go in there and change your uh, windows to make them more efficient, upgrade your uh, wall and attic insulation. Uh, and that'll typically get you, you know, a reduction around 25 or 30 percent of your energy consumption. And if we're going to get to net zero in the building sector, we're really going to have to change the way we heat our homes. So most Canadians are heating either with piped natural gas that goes uh, into their furnace and gets burned or with uh, residential heating oil, Some, if you live in the northeast of the country. Um, and to get to net zero, what we're really going to have to do is switch to electricity uh, for heating our homes and then clean up the grid. So um, the way that we produce electricity needs to be through carbon-free sources. So we have a lot of hydroelectric power in Canada, uh, you know, wind power, uh, solar, and even nuclear power is um, carbon-free. And Erica, you recently wrote that achieving net zero emissions in commercial and residential buildings requires that shift to electrification. Uh, I, maybe it's just my, my olden days Ontarian speaking, but I always thought it was way cheaper, way more efficient to use natural gas than, than electricity to heat a home. But to your point, we require this massive shift in thinking as well as in technology. That's correct. Yeah, if we're going to get there, um, we're going to have to make this massive shift in technology. And when you think about, you know, expensive, there's the, there's the private cost to the individual household of heating the home. But for each unit of carbon that goes up into the atmosphere, that's causing a cost to society. And the cost that we're putting on that um, 
ton of carbon is getting higher and higher as we realize the damages that we're causing with each additional unit. Uh, and if you take that into account, sometimes, you know, $135 a ton is some of the latest estimates I've seen coming out of the United States. Um, then this is really starting to look economic, not just privately, but socially uh, for the world. And it really depends on what technology you're using, right? So in Alberta, where I live, um, it's still pretty difficult to say that like privately it would it would make sense to make this conversion unless you're also interested in getting air conditioning at the same time then uh, switching to a heat pump could make sense but in other parts of the country um, like in Quebec and places like that where there's a lot of uh, hydroelectric power then it, this already makes economic sense in British Columbia as well I think Brian might be able to jump in there on on where this yeah, just to give you a few numbers, you're absolutely right, Erica. I mean, Quebec has a lot of electricity, a lot of hydro, and it's cheap. Most probably of the houses in Quebec are heated by electricity. Uh, Michael, you're you're recollecting what they right. used to call baseboard heaters, which are along the bottom of the of the wall. Uh, that is old style technology. That is the '60s and '70s technology, and I remember those. the The newer style technology. Uh, is heat pumps, and a heat pump is just like a refrigerator or an air conditioner. It literally pumps heat from a cold environment outside and pumps it into the house inside, and they really do work. I actually was looking at it this weekend. I was at a neighbor's house, and they actually said, we're putting a heat pump in, and here's how it works, and it's on the outside, and it looks like an air conditioning unit on the outside, and then it takes heat and heats the, the uh, building on the inside. Heat pumps are not new. When I was in engineering, I won't say how many years ago, I had a professor who, who just talked about heat pumps all the time. But the problem then was they weren't good in cold weather. They were great if it was about freezing, zero degrees Celsius. But if it's minus 20 out, and hey, we still have weather it's minus 20, they, they at that time didn't work very well. So you needed a backup system. And people said, ah, that's way too complicated. I just want a natural gas furnace in my, my basement. It heats the house, keeps everything warm. It ain't broke, so don't fix it, so I'm not going to replace it. And that's why heat pumps have really not been around until recently. Like most things in technology, they've made them better. They now can work at minus 20, and so now there is an opportunity. Eric, you alluded to, how are we going to get people to do this? Well, the short answer is that heat pumps are cheaper. If you'll bear with me a little bit of an analogy, if you want to put five units of, of heat into your building, you have to have a natural gas furnace that produces eight, and you go, geez, what happened, Brian? What happened to the eight minus five, the three? And the answer is the three literally went up the chimney. It was washed to the outside. A heat pump will take one unit of electrical energy and pump four units of heat from the outside into the building, so you'll have five units of heat energy in the building, in your in your house. Uh, excuse me. Obviously, paying for one unit of electricity is a lot cheaper than paying for eight units of a natural gas. So there are uh, efficiency savings from an engineering perspective, but also for your homeowner, there's a lot of savings in costs. The big problem, just like so many things, is you got to spend money up front. Uh, you put in a heat pump, which will cost you 15, say 20,000 bucks to do, and you're going to get savings of, say, $2,000 a year in uh, energy savings over the next 10 years. I can understand that. I used to do that when I worked in, in my former job. But for some people, then all they might do is say, hey, heat pumps are expensive. I don't want to spend the money. Forget it. I'm leaving my natural gas furnace. And after all, the famous expression, a person's home is their castle, and you're not coming into my house and telling me what to do. So what happens, what you need to do is you have to have a plan to actually figure out how to do this. It's not enough to set targets and not enough to say, I have a program to get 5,000 bucks to people to put in a heat pump. You gotta have a plan in place to say, who are the contractors who are gonna do it? And how are we gonna convince people to do it? And who's gonna finance it? 
Michael, there are entrepreneurs out there who say, listen, here's the deal, Brian. If you want to put a heat pump in your house, we'll pay for your heat pump. That 15000 bucks, we'll pay for all of it. But you got to pay me back some of the savings you're going to realize over the next 10 years, 2000 bucks a year. And I, as an entrepreneur doing that, will make money on it. So I'm happy. You, as a homeowner, are saving money. So you're happy. Erica, you mentioned the social cost. The environment's happy. And the government would say, hey, I don't even have to pay for this. This is great. How to make that happen is the real challenge and do it, as you said, Michael, you've got to do it for hundreds and hundreds of thousands of these heat pumps. What you're saying though, is that while this sounds like an effective means of reducing the carbon footprint of an individual commercial or residential home, um, we really don't have the strategy to encourage people to do it. Throwing a $5,000 rebate on that $15,000 price tag is not a big enough carrot for a lot of people, particularly as we go into a recession in 2023, deal with a high cost of living, generally speaking, and wonder when the good times are going to come back. Yeah. The first thing I would do, I've always been taught, always go for the low-hanging fruit first, the easiest things first. And the short answer is go for the new bills. New housing starts in this country are about 250000 Per year. And by the way, all this information is in the website on CD Howe that you mentioned earlier. So if you're only doing 20,000 a year now, which is about the number of heat pumps that get installed, have been installed in Canada every year for the past 20 years, how do you get from 20,000 to 250,000? Well, first thing you do is go to building codes. Some countries, sorry, some cities like the city of Vancouver has said every new house built after 2022 must use a non-renewable source, which basically means heat pumps and cannot, repeat, not use natural gas furnaces. Well, you can do that, and it's a lot easier to do that in new builds. My builder always used to tell me it's much easier to build new builds than it is to retrofit and renovate an existing place. So that's where, if I were the government, that's where I would start big time, and I would say, how are we going to make those 250,000 new builds every year to be non-emitting sources, i.e. heat pumps? Even if we manage to accomplish that, and I don't know that you know, building codes are a federal jurisdiction. I would how, say as a lawyer, they're provincial. Right. How, how do we achieve a drastic reduction in carbon emitted from the electricity we're going to have to produce to accommodate for that upswing in the new units if we manage to get people to buy them in the first place? One approach that we're already using in Canada is to... Um, do some type of carbon pricing. Okay, so what is that? That's we're going to charge uh, these emitting uh, electricity producers for the carbon that they let off into the atmosphere. And it, that's going to increase their costs and make renewable sources more competitive. So we've already seen a drastic reduction in the amount of coal production that's happening in Canada. Um, it's drastically gone down in recent years. So that's going to help. Are we going and to have to build nuclear power plants in your backyard? <laughs> no, we're going to build them in your backyard, Michael. I'm not, yeah. <laughs> well, Ontario has a few of them. We've got uh, hydro in, in Quebec, as you point out as well. But there are huge portions of this country that don't have the electricity generation necessary to accommodate for this. Eric, let, let me talk a bit about Alberta. I did a paper uh, years ago on Alberta's electrical grid, and I looked at it in the CD House stuff. Canada's uh, electrical system is 82% non-emitting. That's because of everything you said, Eric, of the hydro, the nuclear, and the solar, and the wind. Alberta is probably the highest of the emitting. Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Nova Scotia are the three largest emitting of that remaining 8200 minus 82, i.e. 
Alberta's going off is going off coal rapidly. By the year 2025, it'll be completely off coal, and natural gas will have replaced it. When I wrote the paper five, six years ago, there was no solar and not that much wind, but they put in a program called the Renewable Electricity Program to encourage that. And now there's over 1,500 megawatts of solar and 3,500 megawatts of wind, all in a period of about uh, four or five years. So to answer your question, uh, Michael, that's where the electricity is going to come from. And that process will continue. There's a lot of what they call uh, power purchasing agreements where a big company will say to a solar facility, here's the deal. You build a solar facility and produce, say, 200 megawatts of electricity, and we will pay you five cents a kilowatt hour for that electricity. And that will make it a certainty for you, the solar provider, to build it. You can go to the bank and borrow money against the, my 20-year commitment to buy electricity at, at five cents a kilowatt hour. And private companies all over Alberta are stepping up, and, and so there's no longer any government uh, involvement. So that's where the electricity will come from. Now, how do you convince people to, pay, to put in their uh, uh, heat pumps in their houses? Well, you start with the new builds, as I said. And then you go around and you have a, a very, very active program that says, here's why it's a good idea. Forget about the environment. I don't mean to downplay that. But people will look at it from their own sort of what I call, what they call pocketbook economics and say, why is this a good idea for me? Well, because you're going to save money and somebody will pay for the upfront cost. You know, I'm old enough to remember when they had the off-oil program of the early 1980s. And everybody in Ontario, for example, had heating. Uh, uh, heating oil to heat their furnaces, and they say that's wrong because it's expensive. We're going to replace those with natural gas furnaces, which are, among other things, more efficient and less uh, less emitting. So they did that. So they were able to do that then. So I my uh, statement to the, both provincial and federal governments is, hey, if you could do it once, you could do it again, especially when there's the economics, but you have to have an education program. Now, this is not news to governments. They would sit there and go, yeah, 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 Brian, we already know all that. But my answer, my question to you is, don't talk about it, do it, and have a plan to actually do that. You talk about the psychology of, of making those sorts of decisions. It's fascinating to me to learn that spending $50,000, $70,000 on an electric vehicle or $15,000 on a heat pump, we would be more likely to spend more on a car than on heating our homes more efficiently, even though it would reduce the carbon footprint more to do so with a heat pump than a vehicle. Well, just to answer your question, the average house in the suburbs emits about four tons of CO2 emissions a year. The average sedan car going down the street or the highway that you and I might drive emits about three tons a year. And you spend $15,000 to reduce four tons or do you spend $50,000 to reduce three tons? I'll leave the math to you, Michael. I think the answer is pretty obvious. We need a plan to um, go out and aggressively try to encourage households to make these switches. Um, and there's you know, a lot of scope there to get some research done. What is the best way for us to use rebate dollars to try to improve take-up? Do we do that through encouraging contractors and offering them rebate payments because they're higher up the supply chain? Is it better to do that by uh, encouraging individual households? Uh, what, are, what are some other things that we can do to try to reduce barriers? You know, another thing that homeowners have to think about when they go to uh, change to a heat pump is whether they need a panel upgrade. So in some cases, uh, they need to do a panel upgrade to be able to accommodate um, the load of the of the electricity of the heat pump, and trying to facilitate that better for you know coordinating HVAC contractors with electric contractors and kind of guiding homeowners through that process. I think some of these are these the hidden costs that make it make it more confusing and difficult for homeowners to take these these things up. 
Why do we have to have this conversation about the disconnect between strategy and execution in the first place, Erica? You've cited studies in the United States and Mexico which show that savings from energy efficiency programs routinely fall short of predictions, and a Carleton University study shows Canada's retrofit pro program EcoEnergy isn't immune to this issue either. Why is there a disconnect between predictions and reality when it comes to energy efficiency programs? That's a great question. Yeah, so I guess just first to sort of put energy efficiency in the context of this whole conversation, right? We're talking about the path to net zero. And I think energy efficiency can help us get there in two ways. First of all, if our building stock gets more efficient, then that's less pressure and less demand that we need to be met by these non-emitting sources, right? So, so we don't need to build as much of them to cover demand if we can do energy efficiency today. And second, it's going to take a while for that grid to fully decarbonize. And so if to the extent that we can reduce carbon emissions today, that's going to be uh, a good thing for the climate. In terms of uh, carbon emissions today, energy efficiency is actually the most cost effective among the suite of things that uh, Canada could do to, re to reduce emissions. So what do I mean by that? If you can make an investment in your home, where the upfront cost is going to more than be outweighed by that stream of savings, then we're getting those carbon reductions almost as a bonus, right? You get them, you're making an investment that makes sense anyway. And so when you're looking at to the Canadian government, what's the cost of that carbon reduction? It's free or even you could consider it negative to the extent that the benefits outweigh the costs of doing these investments. So the question is, how do we find these cost-effective investments that we could make in the, in the building sector? And um, <clears throat> it turns out that, as you mentioned, a lot of energy efficiency programs run by governments and utilities have gotten a bad rap recently because their savings fall way short of what's been predicted. And so I did a study that looked into what is driving that wedge between projected and realized savings in energy efficiency. And one of the major drivers is the modeling techniques that are being used to try to predict what the savings are going to be. And they tend to be as you could imagine, biased upwards. In, in some cases, they're, they're, they're biased uh, downwards, but for the most part, uh, biased upwards. And uh, we found this in the U.S.'s largest energy efficiency program. It's been found in utility programs in the U.S., as you mentioned, EcoEnergy uh, in Canada. And what, what, they, what all of these programs have in common is they're using engineering equations to try to predict what the savings from these measures are going to be. So just a mathematical equation that tries to relate uh, the amount of energy a home needs to heat, the, to, heat to a certain level that, that the home sets it to, related to outdoor air temperature, all the characteristics of the house. And as you can imagine, this is a very difficult exercise uh, to try to just predict what a home's energy savings are. And so what we do uh, in our work is we ask, okay, is there a better way to try to predict what our saving, what the savings could be? Um, and uh, the reason that we care if we don't have good modeling techniques is twofold. Uh, first, we are getting much less energy reductions and emissions, carbon emissions reductions than we think we are. So uh, potentially hindering our efforts in climate change. And second of all, we might not be doing the right kinds of retrofits, right? So if the model is telling us uh, inaccurate things about the savings, we might be doing uh, 
wall insulation when we should be doing air sealing first or something like this. Okay, so it's pointing us in the wrong direction. So the good news is that the government can use more accurate modeling techniques to better guide spending. Um, and so nowadays we have access to data in ways that we haven't before. It's much easier for us to uh, query large data sets, get billing data. Uh, and in our case, what we did is we used machine learning. So we used a machine learning approach where we um, used the characteristics of a home, including things like its vintage, its square footage, you know, even information about the occupants of the house. And we used that to predict energy consumption, both pre and post when retrofits are done. And what we found is that this is much more a much more accurate way to uh, predict savings. And then secondly, once we have those more accurate invest, investment, or sorry, more accurate predictions of what the savings will be, we can use that to target investments better. So in our study, we, um, we found that if we targeted investments that are said to be cost-effective according to the machine learning estimates, that we could improve the program savings from the largest uh, energy efficiency program in the U.S. from getting a return of 93 cents per dollar invested to $1.23. So it flipped the sign. Uh, in terms of cost effectiveness and got us back into that territory that I was talking about, that you're getting these carbon reductions then uh, at this zero or negative cost. So energy efficiency can definitely be uh, an important tool on this path to decarbonization and the path to net zero. So Brian, do you feel that big data that powers machine learning algorithms and ultimately artificial intelligence is, is one of those silver bullets when it comes to, to fighting climate change? Well, I will certainly give you the data and uh... You know, what's, there's an expression I'm sure you've heard many times, what gets, what gets measured gets done. And the, the everything you just described and what uh, Erica just described is getting data and measuring to say, look, how many houses and how many residential units and how many condominiums and apartment buildings are we looking at and where are they and what has to be done? And you need the data to start with in order to get a plan together to actually execute and put in uh, this guy, things I've been discussing, which is put in heat pumps and the things that Erica has been discussing, which is energy efficiency. So the answer to your question is yes. Do you get a sense that there is an understanding in Ottawa that we have a lot of gaps in this ERP strategy? That is a $64 question. Uh, I, uh, I don't know that answer. Uh, I would hope they do. I would hope that everything, that if they listen to this podcast, I would hope they go, yep, He's absolutely, or they're at, both Erica and Brian are absolutely right. We do need data and we do need to look at how many heat pumps and how much insulation we're going to put in and all those things in order to achieve our targets. And we have to have a plan. I, I use the, have the expression setting targets and say, well, we have a $5,000 grant program. That is a plan to have a plan, but that is not a plan. A plan is when you actually sit down and say, here's what we've measured, here's what we've measured, here's what has to be done, and here's our plan this year, next year, and the year after that's going to get to the number of heat pumps in buildings and the number of insulation and better windows in buildings and all that kind of stuff. And that's what I hope governments are doing, both provincial and federal. So Erica, if that's what Brian would like the viewer to be left with based upon this conversation and understanding what needs to, to change, if there's one thing you would like the viewer to leave this conversation with, what would it be? As we move down this road to net zero, uh, we're going into uncharted territory. And so Again, I'm also concerned about data, about measuring and verifying, right? So um, as we go, are we getting the savings that we think we are from energy efficiency? Let's be as accurate as possible. Let's measure um, 
the benefits from moving to electric heat pumps uh, and really do that analysis and, and put the money where we're getting the highest return for like rebate dollars and things like that. Brian, Erica, thank you so much for your time and insight today. Glad to be here. Thanks for having us. Brian Livingston is an executive fellow at the School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary. Erica Myers is an associate professor at the Department of Economics at the University of Calgary and Canada Research Chair in Environmental Energy and Resource Economics. Their reports can be found at cdhow.org. Still to come from the C.D. Howe Institute's Toronto headquarters on March 8th, the value of acceptance, the evolution of Canada's payments system with the Canadian Bankers Association, the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, and MasterCard Canada. And March 24th, the Honourable Doug Ford, Premier of Ontario, at a roundtable luncheon at the National Club. I'm Michael Hainsworth. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to the C.D. Howe Institute podcast with Michael Hainsworth. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. The C.D. Howe Institute is an independent, not-for-profit research institute whose mission is to raise living standards by fostering economically sound public policies. The Institute is widely considered to be Canada's most influential think tank and a trusted source of essential policy intelligence, distinguished by nonpartisan, evidence-based research and subject to definitive expert review. Visit cdhow.org and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you.